The Gospel of Mark chapter 1, you can find this in your bulletin beginning on the bottom of page 5, continuing into page 6. And I want to invite you to stand with me as we read God's Word from the Gospel of Mark chapter 1. This is God's Word. The beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness 40 days, being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. This is the word of the Lord. If you would, lift your hands with me as we come to God in prayer. Lord, we pray that through your word right now, you would bless your people, nourish and enrich us. We pray that you would help us to come home to you in faith. Help us to turn from the things that are stealing life from us and turn to the one who gives real life, abiding life, true life, eternally. We pray that you would bless the preaching and the hearing of the word so that we will be not just hearers, but doers of your word. We ask for these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Before the colonialists imposed national boundaries, the kings of Laos and Vietnam reached an agreement, an agreement on how they were going to get taxes from the people who were living on the borderlands of their respective domains. How could they determine who belonged to which kingdom? Well, this is what they came up with. Those who ate short grain rice, built their houses on stilts, and decorated their houses with Indian-style serpents were considered Laotians. And on the other hand, those who ate long grain rice built their houses on the ground, and decorated their houses with Chinese-style dragons were considered Vietnamese. The exact location of a person's house was not de what determined which kingdom they belonged to. 
Geography did not determine the kingdom to which you belonged. Instead, each person belonged to the kingdom whose cultural values they embraced and embodied. Though there are many human governments and municipalities in the world, though there are many rulers in this world and politicians we know here living in Washington, D.C. particularly, Scripture teaches us that really there are only two kingdoms. The kingdom of God, ruled by Jesus Christ, the King, and the kingdom of this world, ruled by Satan, the evil one, the adversary. Every single person in this world, according to Scripture, is under one of these two domains. There's no middle ground. There's no uh, safe zone. There's no free zone where you can be noncommittal. Every single person is under one of these two domains. Now, people live in different neighborhoods, in different cities, in different countries, in territories around the world, but it is not your geography that determines the kingdom to which you belong. It's not your place or the exact location of your home that determines the kingdom to which you belong. It is the values and commitments that you embrace and exhibit. Now, for us, it's not about short or long grain rice. It's not about whether our house is built on stilts or on the ground. It's, it's not about how we decorate our homes. But that leaves us with a question. How do we determine the kingdom to which we belong? How, how do we come to a, a realistic understanding of the kingdom of which we are a part? How do you know which kingdom you're a part of? How do you know this? Well, it'll work out in a particular set of desires and loves. It'll look like a particular way of dealing with money and possessions. It will look like a particular way of relating to others in forgiveness and forbearance and patience and mercy. This kingdom belonging will take shape in a particular response to God's authoritative word. This spring, we are going to be talking about the kingdom of God as it is taught through the parables of Jesus. We're going to be talking about the kingdom of God because there is no more overarching theme in all of Scripture than the kingdom of God. If you want to understand the real essence of the Christian faith, you must understand the kingdom of God. If you want to know what, what it is, it means to be a Christian, then you must understand the kingdom of God. As a Christian, if you want to know what it looks like to more fully live this life, to have direction, what were you created for? What is your purpose? Then you must understand the kingdom of God. And this morning, we kick it off with the first chapter of Mark's gospel. It's not a parable, but it's an important beginning that we need in order to understand, in order to frame up the parables that we're going to be walking through this spring. And so in our text this morning, we are going to look at two points where we see the backdrop of the kingdom and the beginnings of Jesus Christ. The backdrop of the kingdom and the beginnings of Jesus Christ. Two points. Let's look at the first point. The backdrop of the kingdom. Now, Mark begins his gospel 
at the start of Jesus' earthly ministry, okay? Now, we've talked about this before, how different gospel writers, they start their gospels in different places. The gospel of John starts way back in creation, back before the creation was made. That's where he begins the life of the Son of God. Matthew begins with the genealogy, and, and, and he begins back with, with Abraham, and he begins to show you the connection that Jesus has in the line of Israel. Mark, he doesn't waste any time. He wants to get right down to brass tacks. He begins at the very start of the ministry of Jesus. But if we're going to put Jesus in proper context, if, if we're going to understand his ministry, then we have to grasp the architecture of Scripture as it relates to the kingdom. And this takes us back to Genesis chapter 1. All right? You with me? We need to lay this backdrop. In order to fully appreciate, in order to squeeze all of the juice out of this orange in these parables of the kingdom, we need to understand the backdrop of Genesis 1, where the kingdom begins. Genesis 1. In Genesis 1, God is portrayed as the creator king who rules over everything that he has made. The entire creation is under his rule. It's under his domain. The kingdom has an established order. We see the way that the, the narrator tells the, the story of God's creating, and he orders the world. And he even uses the language of rule in his description of the created order. But then God came to the pinnacle of creation in which he created humanity. And this is key. I want y'all to hear this. This is key. You want to understand the kingdom? You want to understand your life in relationship to the kingdom? You need to understand this key. God created Adam and Eve as distinct from everything else in creation. They were not some random biological process. They were distinctly created by God specially. And what was the distinction? Humanity was created as the image of God. As the image of God, Adam as God's son, Eve as daughter, and as image bearers and children of the, of the God who is king, humanity was to reflect God's image by ruling over the created order as vice regents or what you could call governors, okay? That's critical for you to appreciate the story of Scripture and what happens. Do you realize God created us to rule? He created us to have royal sensibilities. He created us to be his governors, to take his rule and reign, to extend his kingdom by having dominion over all of the creation, the birds of the air, the, the, the creatures of the sea, and the animals on the dry ground, the beasts of the field. This was the relationship that Adam and Eve sustained to the creation. In your mind, you should think of Adam as King Adam. He was royalty. Eve, Queen Eve. They were royalty. To put it another way, humanity was created for the express purpose of extending God's rule and dominion 
over the created order. That was the purpose. This was the mission. It was as wide as the whole world, and it was to make God's reign show up visibly. To make God's righteous rule show up visibly. How? And the way they cared for the creation. And the way they related to one another. And the way that they stewarded the earth. Took responsibility for it. Kept it. Cultivated. Made it better than they found it. I know it's hard to think about a perfect creation being made better than it was found. But this was precisely God's design. And that's why he gave them a mandate to cultivate and keep. That this creation was, was, was resonant. It was rich with potential. As Adam and Eve were to extend God's rule. This was our calling. This was our purpose. This was our mission in the created order. And this was central to God's plan for building his kingdom. Humanity was. Central. Central. Go out and be like me in the world. We were created to express God's righteous rule in the created order. And God's plan from the beginning, this is also very important. I want you to hear this as key as well. Not only the, the, the royal intentions that God had for humanity, but I also want you to see that it was always God's plan to rule the earth through a man. It was always God's plan to rule the earth through humanity, through a mediator. That was always God's plan. He wanted to rule through human representation. And this, friends, puts Genesis 3 in a different light, doesn't it? It puts Genesis 3 in a different light because what we have in the serpent in Satan's temptation is the advance of a rival kingdom. It's the advance of a, of a rival kingdom. Adam was created in such a way that he was meant to express dominion and authority over that serpent. This was precisely his mission. In righteousness, when the serpent suggested an alternative to the kingdom way of God, Adam should have subdued the serpent and then all of the creation would have been confirmed in goodness and be unassailable. It would not have been possible to ruin creation. This was the probation. This was the test for Adam. Will he be confirmed in his goodness? Adam was created good. Eve was created good. But it was with the test that the question came, would they be confirmed in their goodness? Would they be confirmed in their righteous rule on God's behalf? Adam should have exercised God's dominion over the intruder. He should have ejected this agent of sin and evil. But he willingly succumbs to the rival kingdom. I want you to see that operative word, willingly. He willingly lays down his royal authority over the serpent. And then he becomes subjected. Not only does he forfeit his position as governor, not only does he, does he open up the floodgates of sin, evil, and death, but Adam, who was made to rule and have dominion and advance a kingdom, 
now becomes a subject to a different kingdom and a different king. That's, that's the flip. You see, with the story of Scripture shaping the way we think about life, it's not just, oh, I sinned, I broke the law. It is that. It's not just, oh, I sinned, I'm guilty of idolatry. It is that. But do you see that sin was a surrendering of a kingdom? It was a surrendering of the most astonishingly dignified position that humanity could ever know to be a royal governor of God Almighty to live as his beloved children in the world and to spread his love and to spread his goodness and to spread his truth and beauty, beauty untold, unspeakable beauty. This is what was surrendered. This is the tension, y'all, that we see played out through the rest of the Old Testament. It is a Battle, it's a tension of rival kingdoms. The kingdom of this world ruled by Satan and the kingdom of God. God would eventually establish the kingdom of Israel and a line of kings to, to, to reenact his kingship. But even these kings would fall off just like their father Adam. They would fall off and it would leave the prophets pining and longing and wondering and, and desiring for the day when the Messiah, when the, when the king, the, the Mashach, the anointed one, would take up and restore the kingdom. Kingdom of God, language and theme, was super resonant in the minds, in the hearts of the people of Jesus' day. They were longing for it. They were looking for the one who could bring it all back together. Despite the fall of King Adam in the garden, God's plan to rule the world through humanity remained. For God, listen, y'all, for God, there is no plan B. If there were a plan B, plan B would say, see, plan A, I will rule this world through a human representative. I will extend my rule through a royal human representative. And this brings us to our second point, the beginnings of Jesus Christ. Now, do you see with this backdrop, this kingdom backdrop, it begins to make more sense of the arrival of Jesus. It makes more sense of the ministry of Jesus. It makes more sense of the teachings of Jesus. Jesus looks out over a world in the thraldom of, of Satan, and he comes, and he is now going to assert God's kingly authority again. He is going to break that rule. Verse 1, check it out. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Gospel, good news, how could we have good news in a world that lies under the dominion of Satan? How? The true king has come. That's how. The true king has come. Here we have Jesus, one who is both king, that's what Christ means, king, 
and son. Does that sound familiar? Here you have one who is both king and son. This is the arrival of the second Adam. Do you see this? This is, this is the one who will indeed rule the world as a human being. This is one that Paul says is the image of God. As the image of God, he has come to reflect God's rule and dominion in the world, that rule and dominion that Adam forfeited. And in verses 2 through 11, John the Baptist, as the forerunner of Christ the King, functions as a hinge character. When you think of John the Baptist, I want you to think of him like you think of Isaiah and Jeremiah and, and all of the prophets of the Old Testament. He is like the final prophet who lays the ground for the arrival of the king. He is the hinge player. He's the turning point in his ministry. And he preaches repentance to prepare the way for Christ. And look at what we have when Jesus comes to be baptized by John, verses 9 through 11. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. Do you know that kings in Israel were called sons? That was the name for the king of Israel, the son. And here God affirms his fatherly care and his fatherly pronouncement over Jesus. He affirms his sonship once again. Before he does any ministry, he's a beloved son. Before he does any good, he's a beloved son. Before he preaches any sermons, he's a beloved son. Before he does any ministry, he's a beloved son. Before he heals the sick, he's a beloved son. Before he raises the dead, he's a beloved son. Do you know that before you go out and do a single thing or lift a finger for God, you're beloved by faith, simply? Not because of what, that's good news. That's real good news. That's good news in a day where people are constantly sizing you up and measuring you up to determine if they like you, if, if you're worth their time. This is good news for the lonely. This is good news for the poor and disenfranchised. This is good news for all of you achievers who got all kinds of de degrees and accomplishments behind you. And still you wonder, do people even care about me? Am I even valuable? In union with Christ, you hear the fatherly declaration. You are my beloved. In you, I'm well pleased. That's good. After this affirmation of his sonship, look at what happens. This is money. It's fire. This is fire. Y'all look at verses 12 through 13. The spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness and he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals and the angels were ministering to him. Now look, now the second Adam enters into a confrontation with the kingdom of this world. But it's a very different outcome from what happened in Genesis 3. 
Because when, when Christ the King, the second Adam, the true Son of God, steps up and goes toe-to-toe, face-to-face, mano-a-mano with the ruler of this world, he steps to him and says, your days are numbered. Your days are numbered. I have a grave with your name on it. Evil and death and sin will not have the last word. I am going to make it new. I am indestructibly righteous. You cannot get me off of the Father's course, and I will reign forever and ever. Hallelujah, hallelujah. I think that's what he did in the wilderness. I think Satan was like, oh, oh, no, oh. This is the beginning of God's kingdom revived, restored, renewed, because the true king, the second Adam, the true son, has come. Here in this victory over Satan, Jesus is giving us a preview of the overarching work that he came to do. Do you know that Jesus was not just doing parlor tricks when he, when he healed people? He was not just doing magic tricks when he, when he healed lepers and when he cleansed people of their sicknesses, when he healed people, when he cast demons out of people, people who were under the grip he said, if, I, if by the Spirit I cast out demons, then the kingdom has come upon you. This was Christ giving you a foretaste of the exercise of his royal dominion. What does it look like for Jesus to reign in your life? He sets you free. What does it look like for Jesus to run the show in your life? He raises you up. What does it look like for Jesus to have control in your life? He heals your sicknesses, your infirmities. Everything that you see Jesus doing in his ministry when he draws near to the broken, when he pulls the outsiders in, when he teaches the foolish, he's showing you this is what it's like to be under my care. The tragedy is for people who are deaf, blind, sick, and dumb to try and rule their own lives. That's the tragedy. But this is the beauty of it. Jesus does not despise the blind, the deaf, the foolish, the weak, the sick. He doesn't despise us. He invites us. He calls you. Come, come, come. Let's reboot. I don't know who you think I am. But let me tell you who I am. I don't know what you've experienced, but let me give you something new. Let me change you. Let me get you off of that treadmill you've been running, thinking that you're getting somewhere, but really you're just wearing yourself out. This is the kingdom of God. This is the invitation that we see from Jesus. And I love how Mark's text flows from wilderness temptation into the first recorded words of Jesus. You know these are the first recorded words of Jesus? Verse 15. First thing that the Bible ever records Jesus saying is this. 
The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. First recorded words. This is the inauguration of Jesus' ministry. And not only is it the inauguration of Jesus' ministry, this is the essential message of Jesus. You want to know what Jesus taught? That's the summary. You want to know what's to come in the ministry of Jesus? That's it. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. That's the message of Jesus. Don't let anyone skew your understanding of who Jesus was or what Jesus taught. That is the summary. That is the essence. Nothing captures his teaching more succinctly and more accurately than that statement. The kingdom of God is the central theme in Christ's message. And this is the sum and substance of Israel's longings from ages past. Their great expectation and hope was for the coming of the kingdom of God. That's what they were longing for and they were pining for. Now Jesus says that great turning point of history that was promised by God himself, the time for liberation of God's people and the punishment of his enemies, the time is fulfilled. God's kingdom operation is at work. And you need to see that the coming of the kingdom is not just salvation, it's also judgment. And this is why that's important. This is why that's important. I've said this before and I'm going to say it again. You can only reject judgment from a position of privilege. You have to be an extremely privileged person who lives a very cush life to reject judgment. But those who have been taken advantage of, those who are weak, those who have been abused, those who have been trampled on, those who have been on the receiving end of unjust power, they know that justice is necessary. Somebody has got to make it right. Somebody has got to make it right when Hitler types and Pol Pot types and King Leopold II types ravage peoples with impunity. Somebody has got to make it right when evil regimes take over and brutally oppress people. Somebody's got to make it right. And that somebody is Christ the King. He will make it right. And that's why it was always the poor and the outcast and the oppressed who recognized him and received him. Those who held power didn't like Jesus because Jesus came to upset the power structures. He came to upset the power dynamics. And that's what made people so angry at him. That's what made people want to get rid of him. To put this whole thing another way, what Jesus is saying when he says the kingdom of God is at hand is he's saying heaven has burst upon the earth. Heaven has splashed the earth. Glory and joy forevermore is invading this sad and sin sick world because I am here. It's intimately related to the king. But each of us must hear and respond to the central message of Jesus. Repent and believe the gospel. The truth is, listen, here's the truth. Every person sitting in these pews this morning, big and little, no matter what your cultural background or ethnicity, no matter how much money you have in the bank or how many letters you got behind your name, each and every one of us is very far from that Genesis 1 picture 
of royal dignity. We're very far. We, we, don't, we don't live up into the royal dignity for which we were created. We don't live up into the purpose and calling that we had. Sin has made the kingdom of this world look normal and the kingdom of God look strange. Do you realize that it's been flipped? Sin makes the kingdom look strange and it makes, it makes evil look normal. It makes sin look normal. What, what's the big deal? This is normal. This is the way it is. Because of sin, we all choose to live beneath the royal dignity for which we are created. Listen, greed and lust is living beneath your dignity and calling as a royal image bearer. Pride and selfishness is living beneath your dignity and calling as a royal image bearer. Anxiety and fear is living beneath your dignity and calling as a royal image bearer. And this is why Jesus says, repent. But let me, let me shake some of the dust off of that word real quick. Repent is coming from the Hebrew word shuv, which means return. Come back. Come home. That's what repentance is. Come home. Come home. Come home to generosity and love. The kingdom of God is at hand. Come home to humility and service. The kingdom of God is at hand. Come home to security and assurance. The kingdom of God is at hand. And believe in the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. Believe the good news that King Jesus restores dignity and liberates captives. Believe the good news that, that, that King Jesus has put sin, death, and the devil under his feet. Believe the good news that temptation and sin no longer have to own you. It does not have to own you. Addiction does not have to own you. It doesn't have to have you captured. Believe the good news that Jesus Christ is the king of love. He's the king of grace. He's the king of mercy. He's a faithful king. He's a patient king. He's a wise king. He's a good king. He's the king of kings, and he can be your king. Repent and believe in the gospel. That's the calling of Jesus. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. This is where we're going in this series as we consider the parables, let's pray that God would allow the fruit of the kingdom to rise up within us individually and within us as a community. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. We pray that you would help us to believe it. We pray that you would point out areas in our lives where we need to come home. Help us to come home, Lord, and help us to trust in your goodness and your promise over our own devices and way of trying to navigate the world. We confess that we need you, and by grace, we confess that we have you. And so we pray that you continue your work in us over these coming weeks as we consider your word. We pray for this in Jesus' name. Amen.